Um, Father, I, I do know that a lot of these students had DE startup yesterday. You can go ahead if you want. Um, they had a lot of DE classes startup yesterday, and uh, maybe stress is a little bit higher. Um, I'm also starting my new semester today, so for, for all of us together, um, we pray that you would help us manage our time and energy and stress levels. We pray that um, the way that we've structured things in, in this class, uh, moving assignments around, that that would uh, help these students uh, do what they need to do and perform well. And uh, we do pray that the Wi-Fi would get up soon so that we can uh, better do our, our schoolwork and, and the academic requirements that we have. And as we take time to look um, at what your word teaches about itself today, uh, we pray that you'd be with us and would bless us for it's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Okay, so today um, I want to give you... Yes, ma'am? What's yesterday? What was the number? 2.2. Today is 2.3. And um, you can title it this. Vocab for Scripture. Uh, we're going to go through some vocabulary words. Um, the reason we're doing this lesson is because I want to be able to throw these words out throughout the rest of the semester, and you guys know what I'm talking about without me defining them every single time. So uh, these are things that you need to, uh, terms that you need to become pretty familiar with, okay? We've got, we've got 10 total. We'll see how many of them we can get through today. Um, the first one, the, there's a vocabulary word that we've used for scripture that means that the Bible is without error. What has that one been? Inerrancy, the idea that scripture is without error. We have a lot more to talk about related to inerrancy coming up, but the last couple of days we've taken time to say um, inerrancy, uh, we, we have to have, um, we can't just think, okay, the Bible's inerrant, here's what I think an inerrant book would do, and then approach the Bible. The Bible uh, is an ancient book. It, it's written according to different standards than the standards which maybe we would have for books today. And what were some of the ways that we saw that the last couple of days? Quoting. Like when they, sometimes when they would like quote something from the Old Testament, they wouldn't even say the book name. Yeah, very different rules about citations. What else? Yeah, quoting citations. What, what else did we see about? What about history? What does it sometimes do with history? Yeah, sometimes it's not chronological. And uh, are your history textbooks usually chronological? Yeah, but the history in the Bible sometimes isn't. Matthew is pretty chronological. Mark and Luke are not at all. Okay. Uh, what about, um, what, what else about history did we see? What does the Bible sometimes do with really important historical events? Skips over them. Yeah, to, to try to make some sort of point, right? It'll skip over it to try to make some sort of point. Uh, we wouldn't really want history books, you know, our standards would, would be different. We wouldn't want our history books to do that. But in the ancient world, uh, as the Bible is trying to teach you theology, that's an acceptable thing to do. Uh, the Bible uses figures of speech. Uh, not everything in the Bible can be taken literally. Or, you know, we could say it this way. Not everything in the Bible is true in a literal sense. Uh, you know, you guys read Song of Songs before? Just not all the way through. But you guys know the description of the woman, right? She's got hair like goats, and her eyes look like doves, and her teeth are like sheep. Is any of that true in a literal way? That would be a scary, ugly woman, right? Uh, so the Bible has different figures of speech. And um, 
You know, if you if the Bible is using a metaphor, uh, you know, or a simile, her, her teeth are like sheep. And you take that literally to mean that they have wool and they sometimes say, bah, you know, wrong. Right. But it's not trying to present a literal idea. It's trying to present a figurative one. So we, we've got to be aware of these different phenomena we find in Scripture. Uh, and we need to have a view of inerrancy that can account for those things and is comfortable with those things. Uh, what does Matthew do with Micah, by the way? Whenever he quotes Micah, what does he do? Now it changes it. Paul does that in Ephesians. Oh, and there was one last night that I read, and I can't remember what it was. I found a third one. Uh, but occasionally that happens as well. Okay, And so Matthew changed it, but he changed it. Why? Did he have a point? What it changed about Bethlehem. Yeah, yeah, it's important now. Christ has been born there, so we can't say it's the least of the tribes. So uh, there's a lot more to talk about with inerrancy, but um, this was kind of our introduction to it. So that's uh, one vocabulary word we need. Another one is inspiration. All right, inspiration. We say that the Bible is inspired by God. The scriptures are authored by human beings, but the ultimate author of scripture is God himself. And we've read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 a few times. All scripture is breathed out by God. We've read 2 Peter 1, 16 through 23 several times, where the Spirit carried along the biblical authors as they wrote. So we get this idea that the Bible, the words of the Bible are the very words of God. When the Bible speaks, who speaks? God speaks. Inspiration. Now, um, let's think about inspiration uh, a little bit. You guys who were with, uh, with me last year for church history, this will be a little bit of review. Um, but we sometimes talk about inspiration in a very different way today. A poet goes out in the morning and sits in a field and sees a beautiful sunrise and then he's inspired to write a poem about the beauty that he sees. The sunrise inspired him. Or I told you the more embarrassing example. You guys remember that? When I was in high school, I was, um, I, I'd see, if, I, I wrote poems for girls sometimes. You know, yeah. Yeah. I was pretty dang good at it too. The second one. I think I threw them all away. So, yeah. Or I, well, I mean, the other thing is I, I wrote them, but I didn't just write them. I gave them to girls so that I, they, they'd go out with me, which worked. It, it honestly did work pretty well, but they kept it most of the time. And then we broke up. So it's probably shredded now. So Slate is judging me so hard. So, but I... I went out on a lot of dates, man. I did. Whole bunch. So, uh, you know, and that was before the beard or the, the early beard days. What? Yeah, people don't. You know what? Think about this. Think about this really quickly, and then we'll get back into our lesson. First words Adam spoke to Eve. Love poem. Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. I shall call her woman, for she's been taken out of man. It's a poem. It's, it looks like a poem. Huh? That was thousands of years ago. It was the original words man spoke to woman. Love poetry. All right? Um, 
Uh, anybody ever seen Dead Poets Society with Robin Williams? It's like one of the most famous. You guys know who Robin Williams is, the yeah. comedian. Uh, Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society, marvelous quote. He, 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 he teaches at an all-boys private school, and he walks in to English class, and he says, gentlemen, do you know why language was invented? And they all look at it funny, and he says, for one purpose, to woo women, right? So, you know, gotta woo those ladies. So, so anyways, um, all right, I would see a pretty girl, and I would be inspired to write a poem, all right? Uh, we talk about inspiration in that way. Uh, is that the same thing as biblical inspiration? No. no, right? Biblical inspiration is much more than that. It's not just, oh, these people felt like they had an experience of God and that then led them to write. It's not that. Instead, whenever we talk about biblical inspiration, what we are saying is that God inspired the words that they later put down on the page. The, the words of Scripture are the words of God. They're, they're words that are breathed out from God. They're from God's own mouth through the human author. So when Scripture speaks, God truly speaks. All right. Different than uh, Mr. Gravitz's love poems to miscellaneous women. Um, man, I should, I, I should have kept all of them and then put them together in a, in a volume, uh, you know, in, in a book, and then titled it that or something. Oh. So. You could have made money. Probably. I did, I did write my what wife one not too there? long ago. So. Like, were they, did they have a point, or was it just like, yeah. So moving on. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, I, I think they were pretty good. No, I, mean, I would actually, so, so my English teacher at that point in time uh, is a published poet. She teaches at Ray County High School and also at Chat State uh, and has published several books of, of poetry. Um, and uh, she, I, I actually let her read some of them and she, she approved. She helped me a little bit. So um, uh, in the, the, whenever she writes, it's K.B. Ballantyne. That's her maiden name. Uh, her married name is uh, Carrie Canistrary. So, she probably would not appreciate it if you got emails asking about my love poetry. So, wouldn't advise that. All right, so number three uh, is the word infallibility. We have inerrancy, inspiration, another I word, infallibility. Um, I'm not going to use this one a whole, whole lot. It's pretty closely related to inerrancy. Um, there is a distinction, though. Infallibility is the idea that God's word is incapable of making errors. And then um, inerrancy is the statement that God's word does not make any errors. Um, those are pretty much the same idea, though. Uh, I'm going to give them both to you in case I do use the word infallibility sometime. Uh, but the, uh, the difference is infallibility uh, has to do with possibility. God's word could not make any errors. Inerrancy has to do with fact. God's word does not make any errors. So... 
Um, this is could not, this is does not. Um, to me, that's a distinction without a difference. Um, they're, they're, in my mind, they're, they're pretty closely uh, related. They're, they're pretty much synonyms. But I, I will go ahead and give them both to you. Does that make sense? Like you kind of see the distinction, but same idea. Um, you know, along with this, what we covered yesterday um, is God inspires these biblical texts, um, but they have intended meanings in mind, right? Uh, what the Bible intends to say cannot be and is not wrong according to infallibility and inerrancy, all right? God inspires the text. And God has an intended meaning in the words that he says, and that intended meaning cannot be and is not wrong. Uh, Can we misinterpret the Bible, though? And if we misinterpret the Bible, uh, can we get a wrong meaning out of it? Yeah. But is that the Bible itself making an error, or is it us making an error? It'd be us making the error. So uh, the Bible does require interpretation, um, but whenever God's word is interpreted rightly, the meaning that is in the text is inerrant, it is infallible, it is true. Okay? Um, but you can misread the scriptures, and that can lead to error. So, uh, you know, you could look at Song of Songs and say, oh, it says that her, her teeth are like sheep, but they don't have wool and they don't baw. The Bible is wrong. Well, if you took it in that sense, Sure. But the issue there is that you're not reading the Bible properly. Uh, the issue is with you, not with the scriptures in that example. Uh, you're misreading the text. So uh, moving on from there, the next vocabulary word is necessity. Necessity. The necessity of scripture is the idea that we need scripture. It is necessary for us to know the things of God and learn how to be saved and learn how to live in this present age. Uh, the scriptures are not optional. They are necessary. We need the Bible if we are to know God, know salvation, and know how we can live in a way that is pleasing to him in this present age. We, we've already kind of covered that concept, but if I talk about the necessity of scripture, that's what we're talking about. Okay? Okay. Next one up. Sufficiency of Scripture. This one we've got to spend a little bit of time on. Sufficiency. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Sorry, that AC unit is kind of loud. It's, it's hard for me to hear occasionally over it. Um. Do you guys struggle with that? Like, you guys who sit over here, do you guys have an okay time hearing everything? Okay. So, all right. So the next one up is the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, whenever we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, we are saying that we need nothing outside of Scripture to tell us about God or salvation or how to live in this present age. The Scriptures are enough. They contain everything that we need for a life of godliness according to 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. All right? So the scriptures are sufficient. Uh, does God reveal himself in other ways? Does he reveal himself in nature and creation? He does. But the Bible is so good, 
it gives us uh, so much information that we need that if we only had scripture, we would be all right. It has everything that we need to, uh, to learn about God, learn about salvation, and learn how to live in light of his commandments and law. The Bible is sufficient. Um, stretched too far, though, the idea of the sufficiency of scripture can lead down a little bit of a bad road. Uh, you guys that took me for church history, do you remember the term biblicism? Who remembers what biblicism means? Clara? You remember? What's it mean? Yeah, the biblicism is this me and my Bible mentality, right? I don't need the church. I don't need teachers. I don't need anything else. You know, I just go into a field all by myself with scriptures and, 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 I, and, I, and I read it and I don't let anyone else kind of have a voice in my life. Uh, solely me and my Bible and that is it. Um, well, question. Can you go into a field by yourself and read scripture and profit from it? Can that happen? Yeah. Should you have quiet times? I would encourage you to. Take time. Just you and your Bible. That's fine. Um, the, the, the reason, though, that I would kind of critique biblicism is you have to have this awareness that it is never actually just you and your Bible. And to illustrate this, I will open to this page of my Bible. What does it say in big, bold letters? Table of Contents. Do you remember the passage of Scripture where thus spoketh the Lord Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way to Revelation? Did, did God ever speak that table of contents into being? No. So, how did the 66 books in your Bible get there? Yeah, the church had a lot of work, all right? And, and they, they uh, early Christians met together. They talked about uh, which books showed themselves to be inspired. Uh, and, and through a very, uh, I, I'm not going to say a complicated sequence of events. It's really far less complicated than you might suppose it was. But, but through a sequence of events, the church... Uh, decided that these books and not these other ones constitute holy scripture. Now, there were debates that went into that to a degree. Like the book of Hebrews was very debated for a while. The books of Jude and Revelation, 2nd and 3rd John, these books were debated for a while. The Apocrypha has been debated. Uh, some other books that didn't ultimately make it in, like the Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, the Epistle of Barnabas, these things were debated and were not included. But here's the question. Have any of you really researched that before? Okay, you haven't. So the second that you try to do this me and my Bible thing, what are you relying on? You're relying on the church. You're relying on Christians who have gone before you. Plus, there's this. Um, was the Bible originally written in English with chapter and verse numbers? No. So there has been someone. What, what languages was it written in? Hebrew and Greek and a little bit of Aramaic. There have been people who have taken the original Greek Hebrew texts 
And not only has it been copied and, and passed down and preserved for us, but there have been people who have also done what to bring it into English? Translated it. So right there, as you go out into your field all by yourself, you and your Bible alone, you again are relying on the work of other believers, on the work of the church. And so um, we have this idea that the scriptures are sufficient to teach us everything we need to know about God and salvation and life in this present world. But we don't want to take that to such an extreme that we say, oh, just me and my Bible, right? We want to be... Uh, people who are teachable, all right? The Bible talks about how we need teachers who help us understand the scriptures. We need to let them have a voice in our life. We should rely on the thinking of, of the Christians who have gone before us. We should stand on their shoulders, which is really, you know, our study all of last year. Uh, we don't, um, we, we want to hold that the scriptures are fully sufficient, but we also want to approach the scriptures, I would say, in community with one. The scriptures, uh, think about the New Testament really quickly. Apart from like Philemon, all of Paul's letters are addressed to what? Churches. Churches. Even like First and Second Timothy that are addressed specifically to Timothy, there's usually a charge somewhere in, in that book that says, Timothy, I charge you to read this to the entire church. Very rarely was anything in scripture written to an individual. It's written to communities to be read and interpreted together. And so we don't, I don't think we want to fall into this biblicism, me and my Bible only approach that, that doesn't leave room for other Christians to have a voice in the discussion, doesn't leave room for teachers, doesn't leave room for looking at how Christians have traditionally thought about things. We want to consider all of that together. Uh, the Holy Spirit lives inside of every believer to help them understand the things of God. And, you know, the Holy Spirit might teach me certain things. Then the Holy Spirit might teach you certain things. And I think that part of Christian love is that we, we together learn from the scriptures and from the spirit. So uh, I would say we want to kind of be warned against this mentality. All right, uh, let's see. How many words is that now? We have inerrancy, inspiration, infallibility, necessity, sufficiency, and biblicism. Next one up is authority. The authority of Scripture is the idea that the Bible is the highest and final authority in matters of faith and Christian living. The Bible is the highest and final authority in matters of faith and Christian living. So, here we are. We're learning about the Bible in community with one another, right? We're, we're listening to teachers. We're listening to other Christian voices. But let's say at some point, one of those voices starts saying something that runs contrary to the word of God. Who wins out? The word of God is the highest and final authority. Do you guys want a really, really fun Latin phrase that you can say and sound smart, but it's also just fun to say? This is not one of your terms. This is just an extra little nugget here. All right. Um, there, this, is, this is one of my favorite things in theology. One of my favorite things to write. Norma Normans non 
normata. That is very fun to say. Norma normans non normata. All right, this is a Latin phrase, and it would translate to the norm of norms that is not normed. Uh, norm sounds like what word? Normal. All right, if something is normal, it's, it's the standard. It, it's what usually is, right? So the idea is that we want to have good biblical doctrine, and we want it to be common. We want it to be normal in the church. We want all of us to have good biblical doctrine in the church. Um, and the Bible is the thing that makes us normal. It's the thing that makes us have normal, common, good doctrine. Now, we might have other things. We might have teachers that help with this. We might have documents that help us articulate our faith that we are held accountable to. But at the end of the day, the Bible is the highest of all of those. All right? It is the thing that we are held accountable to, and we can never hold it accountable to something else. You know, if your church has a statement of faith, you maybe are held accountable to that statement of faith. But is the Bible held accountable to that statement of faith? No. Is that statement of faith held accountable to the Bible, though? It is. So the Bible is the, the norming norm that is not normed. It's the teacher that is above all the other teachers. Uh, you may be, you know, have some sort of accountability to that statement of faith, but ultimately the Bible is higher than it. It is the highest authority. All right, that doesn't deny that there are lower teachers and lower types of authorities, but the Bible is the one that wins out. It is the one that is the highest. And the Bible has authority because, again, it's whose word? God's. So it carries the same authority as if God appeared right now to you and this moment spoke and gave you commandments. It carries the same authority uh, as, as that would carry. Okay. Sorry, what does that mean? Um, the norm of norms that is not normed. So, yeah, that's what I was kind of explaining. You know, you, you have, um, norm sounds like normal, right? So you have, does your church have like a statement of faith or something like that? Like if you go on the website, does it show we believe this? Okay, so you have, some of your churches have different statements of faith sort of like that, right? And, and that statement of faith exists to keep members accountable, all right? You have some sort of responsibility to hold to it, all right? So, so what that statement of faith is doing is it's making good doctrine normal for your entire church. And so the idea in this phrase is that, okay, here you are. Here is that statement of faith that's keeping you accountable, and then the Bible is higher than that. You maybe are accountable to that statement of faith, but the Bible is not accountable to it. All right? But is your statement of faith accountable to the Bible? If, there, if it could be shown beyond a shadow of a doubt that your statement of faith somewhere contradicted the Bible, what do you need to do to your statement of faith? You need to change it, rewrite it, right? So at the end of the day, the, the Bible is higher than anything else. It's the most authoritative. Uh, the next one that we want to talk about is holiness. The Bible is holy. Um, in Scripture, the word holy usually has something to do with something being set apart. Uh, sometimes it means if you're, if you're a holy person, 
um, in, in Scripture, uh, you know, that can mean that you're a super moral person. You're very godly. You're very good. All right? If I, if I said, you know, Robert is, is really holy, I'm, I'm probably saying something about his character. I'm saying he's a really godly guy. He does what is good. He does what's right. Um, but along with this as well is an idea of being set apart. So in the Old Testament, um, inside of the tabernacle, there were certain uh, utensils that were kept there that were holy utensils. You know, there's a fork in the tabernacle. It's a holy fork. Now, does that mean that that fork is just, you know, it would, it would win every honors award at fork school? Is that what that means? Maybe. Okay, it, probably not, right? It, it's not winning character awards because guess what is true about forks? They're inanimate objects. They don't do anything. So whenever it talks about a holy place in scripture or a holy fork or, um, you know, there, there's, there's other things as well that, that kind of get that designation, holy bowls, you know, little bowls that are, that are called holy. Um, what that is referring to is something that is set apart for special, sacred, religious use. That's what we are really meaning whenever we say that the Bible is holy. It's set apart. It's special. Okay? Um, In a sense, the Bible is like any other book that we would read. You know, you don't go to the Bible and have like this. It's not a weird puzzle. All right? You read the Bible and, you know, you would interpret the Bible the same way that you would interpret, you know, other things that you read. The Bible's not cryptic. It's not, okay, every seventh word I need to write down the first letter and then all of a sudden it'll make like this really cool thing, you know. Like that's not how we approach scripture. In a sense, you read it the same way you read anything else. But in another sense, it's unlike any other book that we read because unlike any other book, this is the word of God. And unlike any other book, it has the power and the authority to put demands on your life because it is from God himself, right? So in a sense, we read it the same way we read any other book. We we aren't doing like this weird cryptic puzzle thing with it. But in, in another sense, this book is totally set apart and totally unique because it's, it alone is a book that is breathed out and inspired by God and it alone can put demands on your entire life. That's what we mean whenever we talk about the holiness of scripture. All right. You got questions on that? Good so far? So here is the one that is really fun to say. This one it will make you sound smart. If you go home and your parents say, what did you learn in school today? And you use this word. They'll, they won't know what it means and you will sound intelligent. And then you can say, you know, just like walk to your room right after that. So, you know, your mom meets you at the door and says, hey, what did you learn about in school today? And say, oh, we covered in systematic theology the doctrine of perspicuity. And then just walk away and don't explain what it means. And, you know, you'll sound very mysterious and intelligent. So this is why we do biblical studies, right? Hopefully not, right? But <laughs> um, I... <laughs> I took this elective class on Joshua this past summer and there was a sentence that I wrote on my test and the second I wrote it I thought to myself 
my goodness, you're a nerd. Because the sentence was, Yabin is a hypocharistikon of the full theophoric name. And the second I wrote that, a little part of me died inside, right? I wrote that, and I thought, wow, I'm a loser, right? Like, what? This was the sentence. Yavin is a hypocharistikon of the full theophoric I hate that I remember this. <laughs> All right. That was a sentence that I wrote on a test. And again, I wrote that, and then I just like stopped my test for a second and just looked at it. Like a single tear falls out of your eye. It's just, why? So, um, but here's one for you guys. Perspicuity is a little bit more simple than that. Um, so the idea behind the doctrine of perspicuity is that the Bible is clear on the basic topics of our faith. It has to do with the clarity of Scripture. The Bible is clear on the basic topics of our faith. Now, let's make sure we don't misunderstand perspicuity. Are there hard passages in the Bible? Yes, there are. Um, do Christians express a good deal of disagreement on a topic like baptism? Yes. And I'll just tell you right now, the reason why is it's a really hard topic. It's really hard to bring all those texts together and figure out exactly what Scripture is saying about who should be baptized and how you should baptize. It's a really difficult discussion, which is why there's wide disagreement on it. Uh, what about predestination? Is that a tough one? Okay, that's kind of a tough one, too. All right. Christians have very different views on it. It's a hard thing to cover. Um, there are super hard passages. Here are three just from 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 says this thing about how whenever women in the Corinthian church come to church, they should cover their heads because of the angels. Exactly. He doesn't explain. He just says, hey, women, cover your heads. And the reason why is because of angels. And then he offers no explanation. I don't know what he was talking about. You don't know what he's talking about. Some people pretend to, but they don't either. All right? Or, or this one. Um, 1 Corinthians 14 uh, is a discussion about the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. I have a view on that, but guess what? There are millions of Christians who differ from my perspective on that. It's a really hard passage to interpret. Paul isn't... I don't, I, don't, I don't want to say anything bad against Paul. You know, he's an inspired biblical author. But what he says is very confusing there. It's super hard to understand him. 1 Corinthians 15, he just randomly mentions, oh, and by the way, this is the reason people are baptized on behalf of dead people. I actually do know what he's talking about in that one. I figured that one out, I think. But is that kind of a weird thing to hear Paul say? Oh, yeah, this is the reason that sometimes people are baptized on behalf of people that are already dead. And then moves on, offering no more explanation. There are hard passages in Scripture that, in some sense, are, are very confusing and, and maybe are not 100% clear to us. And this is one of the reasons why having some training in, in, in biblical interpretation uh, is helpful. But it's not necessary for the most important, most basic parts of the faith. The idea 
that God is a creator, basic ideas about sin, about how to get saved in Christ, about faith and our need for repentance, about the second coming, all of these things are presented pretty clearly in Scripture. Anyone, for the most part, can read it and get it. That's why sometimes you get like these little seven-year-olds uh, that like start talking about how they read the Bible, and you start thinking, wow, that kid must be really sharp. You ever had that experience before? little kid at Awana or something walks up to you, and it's like, what did you do today? I read Matthew's Gospel. Well, what did you learn? And they start explaining it to you, and it's like, holy cow, who is this kid? You ever had that happen to you? Right? The, the Bible is, at least on the basic topics of the faith, is pretty clear. You know, um, it, it's understandable. It's not a puzzle. It's not a code. It's accessible to people. Um, you know, that's my experience with the freshman class every year. Uh, freshmen come in, and for some reason, they're a little bit intimidated by this idea that they're going to be reading the Old Testament. And then a few weeks in, it's like, wow, I can do this, right? Um, The church father, St. Augustine, says scripture is shallow enough for a child to wade in, but deep deep enough to drown an elephant. The idea is a little kid can read the scriptures and can get the basic ideas of the faith from it. But the Bible also has enough depth where if you give yourself to the study of the scriptures, are you going to get bored? Are you going to run out? No, you're going to start writing things like Yavin is the... Uh, hyperchristicon of the full theophoric name, right? Uh, there's, there's enough there to keep you entertained for a long, long time. Okay. Uh, and then the last one is efficacy. Um, what word do you kind of see in efficacy? Efficient. What, or, uh, what, what other word do you kind of see? EFF. You guys know the word effect, right? Cause and effect, not affect, effect, all right? Uh, the idea here is that the, the scriptures have an effect. They make things happen, all right? Uh, the way that we could say it is that the word of God has power to change hearts and lives. The word of God makes things happen. It has power to change hearts and lives, Uh, Romans 10 talks about how people will receive salvation through hearing the word of God. Hebrews 4 talks about how God's word uh, is like a double-edged sword that cuts sin away from us. Isaiah 55 talks about how God's word goes out and does something and doesn't return to God empty or void. It's effected a change as it's gone out. So from all of this, we can kind of summarize by saying God's word is needed, God's word is enough, God's word is understandable, and God's word is final, right? It's the chief authority, the highest authority in all of this. Okay. That's 2.2. We got through it. Questions? Comments? Concerns? You're right, you're right. I'm sorry, 2.3. Thank you. You guys like that perspicuity word? It's kind of fun to say. Do you guys want to know what this means? Yes. So, um, any of you guys have a nickname that's like a shortened version of your name? Yeah, I don't like it. Oh, like, uh, uh, your name's Kristen, but you go by Chris, right? 
the technical term for that is a hypochoristicon. If you take, it's a, if it, uh, it's a nickname that is a shortened version of your real name. So like, um, my name is Jackson, if someone called me Jay, all right, instead of Jackson, that would be a hypochoristicon. Now, if you just have like a random nickname, not a hypochoristicon. So like if Asia, well, Asia would be a shortened version of Anastasia, so that would work. But if like Asia started for some reason being called like home slice or potato chip or something, not a hypochoristicon, right? It's only whenever it's a, an abbreviated form of the name. So um, Yavin was the king of a place called Hazor. The name Yavin literally means uh, creator. And so um, the person that I was writing about argued that Yavin was probably a Bell worshiper, and so the full name was probably Bell Yavin. Um, it probably was not, I am King Yavin, and I created heaven and earth. It was probably Bell Yavin, so uh, the name of his god was actually part of his name. Uh, but the scriptures just call him Yavin because it's using an abbreviated form of his name. Yes, you may. What? Yeah, that's what I did this summer. You guys like went swimming and stuff, and I did that. So, um, do I regret it? No. Uh, does that part make me sad? A little bit. A little bit. All right. It is ten fifty nine. So go ahead.